This podcast is proudly sponsored by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX35. I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Peter Jewell. Hi, Pete. Hello, Jess. Today, we'll be talking with the delightful Natasha Swan. Natasha is the manager of statutory planning at Manningham City Council. For our Victorian listeners, you've probably met or seen Tash in action at various seminars or public forums. Tasha's always been someone that I've, that I've admired. She's incredibly outgoing and personable and has an ability to cut through the red tape to achieve real change. Tash started out her career at Borbore Shire Council, a rural municipality located in the Gippsland region, or for those outside of Victoria in the southeastern um, part of Victoria. From here, she moved to Manningham City Council and has been there now for approximately 16 years. Welcome to the show, Tash. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Now, Tash, I'll just give our listeners some idea about Manningham City Council. It's located 12 k's east of the Melbourne CBD. Its northern and western boundary is marked by the Yarra River. It has a population of 116,000 with an area of 114 square kilometres. The housing stock in the west is typically post-war suburban low density. Yep. Yep. I'm good so far. And as you move to the east and to the northeast, there's more one-acre blocks and greater. And it's quite an affluent area. The principal commercial area is the Doncaster Shopping Town. We now think of it as Westfield, Doncaster. Westfield, good branding by them. And this was one of the original post-war regional suburban business centres or commercial centres. And the area is more affluent than Melbourne average and the overwhelming method of transport is via private vehicle. Yep. Yep. And I'll also say, listeners, that I used to work at the previous council, the city of Doncaster and Templestowe, which became Manningham, and it was one of my favourite places to work. So, Jess... So, Tash, what actually drew you to study town planning? Um, well, actually, I wanted to be an architect, but I couldn't draw and <laughs> actually my marks weren't quite good enough. And so I got into planning instead, always with the intent to transfer across to um, architecture and then found the light that actually it was about the spatial sort of makeup of a city and that that was something that I was better at um, and I still can't draw. <laughs> Don't worry, I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> and um, your role as a manager of statutory planning, what does a manager actually do? Um, very little planning work <laughs> is the sort of first part of that. Um, fortunately, you get the opportunity to dabble in sort of very big projects, often, however, when things maybe aren't quite going according to plan. Uh, but it is a lot of budgeting, KPIs, monitoring data, that sort of thing. Um, It's also a lot of career counselling. I like to think of myself some days more as a life coach than a manager um, (laughs) because it is a very stressful environment working in a municipal council as a town planning department. And so part of that role definitely is maintaining the mental health of your busy team. Definitely. And how big's the team there at the moment? I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, (laughs) It's got quite a few people in it, about 25 or thereabouts, maybe a couple more. Um, But, yeah, mostly town planners, um, very busy office. Yeah. Now, Tash, just departing from our normal questions, uh, you've got a lot of millennials in your staff. We do. And I've heard heard other managers complain that they are sooks and precious and don't take criticism. Is that a fair – is that your observations? Um, I must have a fabulous bunch of millennials because um, I have equally heard that but not, fortunately for me, found that in my immediate work team. I'm very proud of them. Um, But I do know what you mean. I think going into a planning office, though, for any young 
person is a really confronting and challenging environment. It's probably the first time anybody's ever yelled at you, swore at you and or hung up on you. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit of a challenge for a brand new planner coming into local government. It's a little bit of baptism by fire on many occasions. So so mentoring is exceptionally important. It is, it mm-hmm. is. Because otherwise I think you'd only be in the local government industry for about five minutes mm-hmm. and you'd, you'd find your way out. It's probably not what people expect of the job either is to be criticised and yelled at and, you know, that is part of the job, isn't it? It is. Um, It's probably the lack of respect that they sometimes feel when they engage with members of either the community or or the development industry is not something that they thought about. You know, Mm. they've done their degree, they're a professional, they're just expecting to be working in a professional environment. So I think that is the thing that takes most people back a bit. Mm, Part of it is also the the young planners can read the rule book yes. but don't understand what the what it all means and uh, are very officious. That's what I find. That, that they, you yeah, know, they're very literal they're ver- um, and ver- they, they don't brains. understand where the, um, yeah, where the wriggle room might be or where the interpretation comes from um, and, and naturally quite cautious too so they're not likely to make decisions on their own. Um, but councils also have structures that stop them from doing that. You know, they're not mm-hmm. delegated to make decisions, so therefore they're unlikely to give advice in that sort of space. Uh, but I think you do get better at it. Mm. So Manningham contains quite large areas of post-war suburban housing. Um, I think Pete compared it to Neighbours, actually. Yeah, definitely not Summer Bay, it's Neighbours. <laughs> not Summer Bay, no, that's right. <laughs> the um, subdivision layouts and housing is um, sort of 50-plus years old. How adaptable are these areas to accommodate change? Uh, well, I think certainly, like many middle suburbs, Manningham's got a good, comfortable grid layout. It's got a network of neighbourhood activity centres. So you're never very far from anywhere else. Mm. And so in that respect, it does lend itself quite well to that change and transformation that's happening. Um, I think we've all seen that the main roads in these sorts of neighbourhoods, um, you know, middle suburbs, are a lot busier and the amenity is a lot poorer. So there is a bit more of an attitudinal shift away from trying to protect the, the single-family home, mm. um, particularly along those main road corridors. So I think there is an, an appetite for that change as well. People yeah. aren't desiring that um, sort of housing in those locations as much as they were before. Uh, but... That said, the hinterland, like most middle suburbs, is pretty intact mm-hmm. and, and that's where I guess a lot of the conflict comes from where change might happen. Yeah. Uh, on that point, Tash, the last 10 or so years have seen uh, increased restrictions on housing adaptability, mm-hmm. including multi-unit development in, in the form of zoning restrictions that came out of, of the place and also policy restrictions. How, how does this help housing affordability and, and housing choice? Well, it, Those restrictions are not consistent across the whole metropolitan region. So different parts of the state have decided to be more restrictive and some less restrictive. So I think that has an impact where you have concentrations of councils that have imposed higher restrictions um, and the inner east is sort of fairly notorious for that. Um, I think in terms of affordability, we hang a lot on housing diversity in terms of providing affordability, but I still think there is... A societal conversation to have about that, the notion that you can have a more affordable house because it's an apartment rather than a house, um, still does lead to the question of that aspiration for the great Australian dream, which is owning your own home and not necessarily wanting that home to be a two-bedroom apartment, which between two other levels. Mm. So I'm not sure that the housing restrictions in and of themselves can solve the affordability issue that Melbourne faces, but it can provide a more diverse housing stock. 
and then by default that housing is cheaper. But is it still what people were wanting as their family home? Mm. When I was working at Doncaster and Temple State, what Manningham used to be, there was a lot of unit applications, like villa units, like yeah. four or five villa units, and some of them were single storey, some of them were part two storey. And that new element to the housing market seems to have been lost. We still get quite a lot of medium density, we would call it, not so much the detached villa units. A lot of it's two-storey. Mm-hmm. Single-storey units, are, are, there's a dearth of... I mean, you, you can't find them for love nor money, and when people build them, they build them to a high standard and they, they get amazing prices. Um, we, we've seen the resale value of single-storey units in our municipality significantly higher than a lot of the two-storey housing stock for that very reason. Um, I wonder whether that's part of the push now for the high-rise aged housing, you know, the yeah. over 55s in, a, in a, an apartment building with almost, um, what is that, hotel-esque mm. um, entry foyers and communal cafes and they have a permanent night manager and all these sorts of other things. Because you can't find a single-storey unit, um, you'd have to pay a premium for it. Mm. We've noticed now too with the Minister's new garden area in position, a lot more two-storey development because floor space is a premium on land um, and that's maybe an unintended response to for, that. For, for, for listeners outside Victoria, that garden minimum garden area Tash mentioned is that it's a mandatory mandatory requirement that you have a certain percentage of garden area for any unit development. Yeah. And it's not a new concept. Planning schemes have always had site coverage um that used to be done through policy and then when the new sort of Clause 55 or Res Code standards for Victoria came out for medium density, it was sort of seen that that would then shift into sort of standards rather than local policies. Um, But we had always toyed with the concept of having a varied site coverage depending on whether you're providing for single-storey housing as double Mm. and actually incentivise people to build single-storey housing as part of the variety by allowing them more building area to, to deliver that. And I think there's probably still some opportunity to consider that um, because by and large, it's it's a form of housing that we're not seeing. That said, medium density housing in Manningham is probably about 15% of all of the housing stock and apartments is starting to nudge closer to 10%. So that still means that the majority of housing in Manningham is single detached dwellings and a large number of those are single storey. So they're bigger, but they're all on one level. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether some people are staying in larger single-storey homes for longer rather than downsizing on space uh, in response to the lack of finding that suitable housing. Mm. And the reverse living concept, I suppose, is also contributing to that lack of um, downsizer stock. Yeah. 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 We're starting to see some of that come through and I'm not sure how successful it is as a concept. I like the notion that when you're in a sort of... If you've got a view to to gain, of Mm. course, it, it makes sense, but... In terms of adaptable housing, it's not particularly adaptable if all of your key services are upstairs. So Correct. unless you've got the money to put a lift in, you really forever need to be very mobile. Mm. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to break an ankle um, and have to live in that house because for most of them, there's no options. Correct. Mm. Uh, for a, a bit of a pet of, a pet subject of mine, <laughs> Manningham has several large parks of regional significance yes. and access to open space and large spaces is recognised as having great benefits in terms of mental health, yep. something Jess did, Jess did a Masters in Public Health. Mm. And so the idea of pe- more people having greater access to big parks 
Because they say if you do a walk for 20 minutes, it's better than taking antidepressants. Yeah. So is there a case for greater density? I'm talking about mid-rise mm. around some of your regional parks. I think there probably is an argument for it in part. Um, part of the regional parks are obviously complex because some of them are a, more of a natural environment, a little bit more remote. Um, and a fairly high fire risk danger. So there is a bit of a tension there. Uh, but certainly in the more metropolitan side of the council, um, there's a large municipal park. We, we've got a very good distribution of open space that is actually reasonably well connected as well. So the linear park is probably also helping in that. Um, we haven't seen a lot of high-rise or mid-rise development around those parks, but we do see quite a lot of Isn't that the strategic settings, changing the strategic settings to allow for other things, though? You could. A lot of those larger parks are actually bounded by roads, so it doesn't really lend itself to having, you know, your apartment building overlooking the parks, and those main roads are now subject to quite a bit of that higher-density development. So I think it's probably happening anyway, um, albeit that the focus of the planning strategy perhaps wasn't around getting those densities around the park per se. It's certainly part of our consideration. Mm. So one of the areas um, that Manningham has concentrated growth is around um, the Doncaster Shopping Centre area. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a few high-rise towers under construction, um, permits issued. This is probably something that was quite unthinkable 20 years ago. Um, what are your thoughts on this change and how have your staff um, adapted to assessing those sorts of applications? So Doncaster Hill's been a journey. Uh, it certainly was something I actually collaborated on the project very early in my career when I joined at Manningham, um, and we had a sort of cross-functional group in council that worked on that project. Part of that was then the learning and the training around how you actually assess those sorts of planning applications, because mm. you're quite right. It's one thing to write a strategy to say, give me a 14-storey building, but it's quite another to know what you're looking at when you then have to assess the plans for it. So I think that... Um, that work that we did collaboratively together probably has paid forward in terms of learning those skills early on. Uh, I would say that it's been reasonably successful. Um, patience was the key to any sort of redevelopment strategy like that. So, of course, when the strategy was first launched, a flurry of permits were granted, nothing was built. Five years went past, everybody said, well, it's a complete failure and it'll never happen. Um, we looked at the sort of experiences of South Bank, where we're sitting at the moment, that they did this fabulous strategy, everyone got permits, nothing was built, five, ten years passed, and then all of a sudden off it went. Um, and we're now bearing the fruit of that. And I think each building that is going in is an improvement on what we learnt from the last building. So over a longer period of time, we've been able to build skills in understanding what the opportunities are. Um, it's probably time for a bit of a refresh on that strategy to even see what more it could do um, and make it a bit more contemporary. Uh, but we were probably fortunate in timing that Westfield Doncaster did its massive expansion and that seemed to have a flow-on effect. Definitely. Uh, to incentivising why would I build there. Mm. And what about the councillors? How did you get them across the line on that concept? Or was that something that was councillor-driven? The councillors were very supportive of it, so the initial strategy, and the councillors that have followed since understand the basis of the strategy. And it tells a good story for Manningham, and I think whenever you're trying to inspire change in a, in a council, you need to understand the full picture. And the picture for Manningham is that we have Doncaster Hill and it's carrying its heavy load. 
and therefore it's not going to look like other parts of the municipality. But by contrast, that means that the green wedge stays protected. Mm. Uh, so obviously the eastern parts of this council are protected by the metropolitan green wedge provisions and can't be subdivided. We can't provide for housing in those areas, so we need to provide it somewhere else. Um, it also tells a tale to the community that we still need to see some change in the balance of the residential areas, but we don't need to carry such a heavy load in every side street. We can concentrate that load somewhere else. So as part of a big picture, it, it's it's quite appealing uh, because it, it's a defined area that's now well accepted and understood. Tash, there's um, some concern about the missing middle, mm. and that is the uh, that's in the middle ring suburbs, that yeah. mid-rise housing. That, yeah. Because not everyone wants to live in a tower. No. Uh, and it seems like there's a real segregation in the housing market. Mm. And that segregation is perhaps fairly artificial. That missing middle, can you explain, talk to that, that sort of idea? And so the missing middle is that concept that there's something over three storeys but under, what, sort of eight or yes. six or something yes. um, that is a, a kind of product. I don't know how much planning regulation plays into that. Certainly the zones in Victoria set out artificial limits like 13.5 metres is a kind of arbitrary maximum. Um, but you can implement planning policy to change that. So it isn't in and of itself a prevention. But our experience is certainly that there's been very little take up, for instance, in Doncaster Hill where you've got four and five storey height limits. There's no movement. Um, it's extremely expensive to build over three or four storeys. So once you start to build over that in Melbourne, it becomes almost too expensive to not be double that. So I do wonder whether those costs, because of the additional labour costs, um, the infrastructure for the buildings... Well, it's not the labour costs, it's the union rates that apply. That's, that, that's essentially what it is. I don't know that is. I have it's, you on that. <laughs> no, so, so it's not like you need extra workers, it's just that the penalty rates and all those sort of things... Yeah. Get sprinkler off. systems kicks in at about oh, four or five oh, levels. There's a few other things yeah, like that, but yeah. I don't know that they in and of yeah, themselves are complete prohibition. But you just don't mm. seem to get much interest or appetite in building at that middle point. So mm. we have rarely seen an application that's asked us the question um, to to push for that development. So I'd, councils, of course, naturally aren't inclined to want to invite it necessarily. We do in Doncaster Hill, but there's not a lot of take up. When when you encounter resistance to your plans, how do you how do you tackle that? I think it's a strong role in terms of influence. So, when you say resistance to your plans, do you mean in terms of resistance we have against our strategic vision, or resistance from people well, in the you're, community? You're right. The question could have been asked a lot better. <laughs> say say you are trying. I'll give you a scenario. You've got a developer who comes in with the plans mm. and. There are aspects to that development that you don't find uh, is a, yeah. a good solution, uh, and there's better ways. How do you how do you convince them to bring them out? Apart from using a big stick. Um, well, the big stick's your last resort because that is least effective. Um, it's your influencing and negotiation skills. So, explaining why you don't like something is the most important and key element. So, saying you don't like it, full stop. That's it. Move on. You explain the context. We don't like the height of your building because our aspiration is for something different. The reason our aspiration is something different is this good reason. That is the sort of context that you need to be providing in order to then be able to negotiate. So and I think there is often a reluctance to kind of pinpoint what it is that is the fatal error or to 
to be so bold as to put forward that. But certainly our policy at Manningham is to be very forthright with that because if you don't know what the issue is, you can't move on it. Um, but the big stick, I guess, is ultimately we are the authority. Um, I've never found the need to exercise that authority because I, I sort of already have it. Ultimately, if I, I'm delegated to refuse an application, if I decide to refuse it, it it's done. Um, the tribunal sits there as the independent umpire, but you don't necessarily always get what you want on either side when you're at the tribunal. So I guess that's a lesson that I've learned over my career is that you certainly don't need to... Um, be authoritarian about your approach to planning mm. um, because you already are the planning authority. Mm. So Is part of your role as a manager um, to help educate councillors about planning matters? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So we provide them with briefings when every four years there's an election, so you get a certain number of new councillors. We brief them early on about process, you know, what is your role in the planning process, where does it go? And we give them lots of information around... Um, policy and why we do what we do. Um, our most successful planning policy framework uh, that we've done has been taking the councillors on the journey we want to take our community on. Mm -hmm. So it's about giving them lots of facts um, and then setting that in a context for what they might do with that. Uh, Tesh, what, what new paradigms are emerging in guiding development in your area that are likely to be replicated in similar post-war suburban car-dominated areas? Well, I guess the first part is that there is a desire for more people to live in those areas because they are more affluent, they're well serviced. So we are seeing more pressure and more development actually happening on the ground now at a faster rate than we've ever had commensurate to the number of approvals we're giving. The key to managing that change is about managing the amenity impacts that flow immediately from that. Otherwise, you start to lose your um, confidence about whether your change is actually a good change or not. And by that, I mean things like managing construction sites while that's actually happening, being proactive about managing parking that comes after the fact, um, proactive about managing some of the teething issues you have with new developments where all of a sudden rubbish appears on the nature strip or shopping trolleys start congregating down the street. They're little things and they've really got not much to do with planning, but they become the lasting memory, if you like, of what is the change that's happened in my area. Um, the buildings look good. Uh, they serve their purpose and their function. But if you don't manage the flow on that occurs in the neighbourhood around them once they're in place, then there's a whole negative connotation that comes with it. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. And finally, thank you to Salt Traffic and Waste Engineering, who are a highly skilled group of professionals under the direction of the wonderful Joe Garrity. Details also on our website. There have been some criticisms of the interior design of apartment buildings and multi-unit designs. What are your thoughts around this? Do you think the new um, better apartment design standards are having an effect? We certainly... Oh, well, I certainly think that part of those apartment standards are definitely having an effect. Mm. The notion of minimum reasonable areas for living spaces was a massive missing 
piece in the jigsaw puzzle, um, standards for access to light. Um, I don't so much have a view on whether the apartment standards we have are the best. Mm. I just know that having them in principle is a good thing. Um, we would see a variety of um, outcomes, particularly more so in Doncaster Hill where you end up with the sort of 14-storey building. There are some apartments in there that were just minuscule and mm. the, the amenity for people living in them, very poor. Yeah. And those minimum standards aren't a huge transformation on what those apartments were. I don't know that they would have resulted in less apartments, for example, in the same building, but they might have made you make some decisions about your layout arrangements and, and proportions. Um, I've certainly seen some pretty horrid examples in the CBD of some fairly poorly designed interiors and you know that it's a lasting legacy because what do you actually do once they're all subdivided and they're owned separately and they're in the marketplace the building's going to last for 50 years and, yeah, and they're, right. they're going to be a legacy um, what we have seen in Manningham which I think probably will radiate out other middle suburbs is some of these buildings where they've perhaps jammed in one or two more of the smaller apartments than maybe they could you know in mm. terms of amenity yeah people have actually bought two off the plan and and changed the whole internal layout so mm. some apartments where we had concerns that they were really not going to be a great outcome the market has validated that yeah and the developer has changed their layout to try and sell them so i think there's a bit of maturity there because there's more of an owner occupier feel once you radiate out to the middle suburbs. Yes. I can see with investment stock, you get quickly into the space of having large lots of apartments on the books that maybe have a low amenity. And that really, to my mind, has greater effect on housing affordability because they're in the rental market and they're really substandard. Definitely. There's a huge demand, I think, for really well-designed apartments mm. as well, but there's just not many of them. It gets back to that question of how can you adjust people's views of what is your ideal home mm. if it, your choices are a massive five-bedroom house mm. built by a you know, set-plan home builder um, that has all the whistles and bells or a shoebox that has no natural light and a living room that you can't fit a two-seat couch in. So mm. you've got to provide better options than those two poles. Definitely. Um, and standards like the apartment standards start to help that because maybe apartments on the market are a better quality of living and therefore they're a choice now. Yeah. And what do you do when you have kids? I mean, there's got to be mm. something in between. I mean, the, the smaller apartments are, are fine when you're a single couple or yeah. a childless couple, but what happens when you do have kids? Where do the kids play? Where, what do you do with them when, yes. when you're going crazy? <laughs> <laughs> We've got many friends that live in apartments with their families, much to um, the shock of the uh, broader middle suburban community. Um, they do it all around the world uh, yeah. quite successfully, but part of that is being located near two good things like open space. Exactly. Um, and other features. I mean, you just look how successful the apartment buildings are along the foreshore in that kind of Albert Park. Definitely. Down to the pier, yeah. Station Pier area in Melbourne. And it, its biggest sales pitch is you've got that foreshore, you've mm. got massive parklands in behind as part of those apartment developments. So it's certainly now an option because mm. you've got somewhere to go and it feels safe. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I can well see the attraction for that. Definitely. And you've got the third place, that cafe you can go to. Yes. That, mm. that, uh, yeah, that's yeah. an extension. Tash, you, you raised you know, the philosophical question I'm going to ask you now. There's a, there's a struggle between developers and yes. planners or regulators in terms of the level of control that is desirable. And yep. you've given some great intro into that about the apartment. What parameters do you think should inform that balance? 
Well, I do think that there is obviously a key role in development for the practical realities. You've got to be able to get approval for something you can afford to build. It needs to be designed by somebody that has an eye for that and clearly the architects have a role to play in that. And the planner's role is around balancing then that expectation um, and the expectations of the community. So I planners will call on advice from urban designers, perhaps in their own councils and things like that, to inform whether they're getting that balance right. Um, but just because something looks pretty, if it's in the wrong location and it's not the right size, it mm-hmm. it, it still doesn't fit. Um, and that that is the tension that I see that's greatest, is that, yeah, we've had developments where we, we've really liked the design it's been fantastic it's just in the wrong location um, so the planner still has that role to play that there is that balancing between your right to develop and your right to enjoy some amenity where you exist I mean, you're acting on behalf of the the silent public in a way correct to yeah. to massage this development into that location yes and often massaging it in the context that maybe the immediate community directly adjacent to it isn't welcoming. Mm. However, we are there to provide the balance between complete domination of a change um, and trying to maintain some sense of the existing amenity, which is supposed to be changing. Mm. So that, that is always the hardest applications is that infill in a place that's identified for change. Yeah. And we also just want to have a quick chat about technology and how you see the impact of the ride-sharing economy, so Uber and Flexicar and all of those um, different systems. What impact are they having in Manningham? Well, it's really interesting. We explored ride-sharing, so the car share spaces and things. In the early um, Doncaster Hill strategy, we tried to attract them as a partner to come mm. into some of the developments that had approval but hadn't yet been right for building. Um, and we were told that there was no interest and no appetite because really it was only a very low take up in the inner city and in the CBD so sending it out into the suburbs wasn't really an option. Um, That has changed. They're now very interested in looking at opportunities to locate within some of the buildings within Doncaster Hill already or potentially negotiating with the major shopping centre for some spaces located there Um, and I think that is a bit of a shift that we have seen. Um, Manningham's actually gone through an extraordinary modal shift along its main road corridors with people moving away from their car to the bus. Yeah, because Manningham is, is mostly about the bus, isn't it? it it's totally about yeah, bus. We have yeah. no, no fixed rail at all. No. Um, the rapid bus transit network that they implemented, I believe it was something in the order of 250 or 270% higher take-up than they had estimated in the first rollout. So naturally it had a few teething errors because there was a lot of people all of a sudden wanting to use the system. Um, I believe there's a modal shift plan out there that just shows these giant red radiating dots all the way along the main corridors through Doncaster and um, through Bulleen and Templestow where people are flocking to these buses as a really reasonable alternative to getting to and from work. But that's completely different to whether or not you are in a car and I think that's an area of planning that fascinates me. There's a lot of emphasis placed on reduction of car parking supply but that doesn't necessarily equate to car parking usage. Mm. And I think we're a bit, we're torn and we're a bit backwards in that respect. I know there was a lot of um, bit of arm wrestling occurring in parts of redevelopment in the inner city in South Yarra around the Forest Hill development where they wanted to see significantly less car parking and developers, of course, wanted to provide it. Yeah. Um, 
the reality in that centre is it's not gridlock at you know eight o'clock on a Monday morning because most people that live there work in the city and yeah. either walk or catch the train. Um, if they've got two cars parked under their building for the week, does it really matter or does it have any impact to anybody? Um, and certainly Manningham is a reasonably affluent suburb, so the cars that they own, they want to secure away. They don't mm. want to leave them on the street. So is having the car in and of itself an indicator of your usage? Um, historically, yes. Mm. Yeah, but uh, more so now, not the case. So how you then provide for that in developments is an mm. interesting... Mm. It's like Uber. I mean, in, in New York, more Uber trips are made than cab trips yes. now. Uh, Airbnb in Australia has just passed $1 billion yes. in bookings. Yeah. So these new new technologies are coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Airbnb has doubled every year. Mm. So... How do you see those sort of things? I mean, it's a very broad question, but... No, no, I, I, yeah. I see where you're going. And it's also read the question with us and things like the um, the electric car and then the car that's the driverless car. So the concept that you no longer need to garage a vehicle because it can just be circulating around without you and mm. it turns up when you've got it booked and it goes away when you don't and somebody else uses it. At this stage, I think I could see that happening in the future, but at this stage the possessions seem to be still quite important. So we're a, we're a contradiction as a society. We, are, we like definitely. to Uber to get to certain places because it's more convenient, but it doesn't mean we don't still own a very expensive car. So there is that contradiction that we, we like it because it's an option and a choice. Um, it's a bit like we all like to go out for dinner, but we've still got a kitchen in a house. So it, it, you still have those... Um, the vehicles to house, you've still got the choices that you want to make and therefore how much does that actually change the urban fabric? Maybe not much yet, but it does maybe mean that there's less traffic on the road at some point in the future because mm. people are commuting. I, I want to see Uber do a car share scheme where they basically pick up six people on the way to work. Well, yeah, in definitely. the States it's called Lyft. Yes. So that, that is already happening. Yeah. And that, that uh, they don't drop you necessarily right at your destination. They'll drop you. Yeah. So they're going down a route. So Manningham might be the first ones to trial the driverless bus, perhaps. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Well, they <laughs> talked about burying it, didn't they, along the central corridor of the Eastern Freeway where the railway reserve is. Yeah, that's, that's not right. a bad idea. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't try those technologies. Mm. Um, the beauty of the bus is, of course, that when a car breaks down, a tram can't go anywhere. Mm. Or if a, if a branch falls down, the mm. train can't go somewhere or a signal fault. Mm. The bus just drives around the broken traffic lights. So yeah. um, we've always been really jealous of the rest of the metropolitan region that has some form of fixed rail, even if it's a regional rail network. <laughs> <laughs> but the buses do provide us with flexibility and it's interesting to see how the attitudes to buses in Melbourne is slowly changing. Because mm. if you're in Brisbane the bus is king. Mm. So yeah. we just have a very well, strange that, attitude to buses. Maybe in that's an inner city snobbery because the well, inner it's a city... suburban snobbery and, too. And, and middle suburb because they've got trams. But I, I have a colleague who has an old Melways and the stations at Doncaster are on the yes. Melways yep. to the future station, rail yep. stations that... The ghost Never stations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm, so bizarre. So, <laughs> Tash, uh, each generation of planners, and we have this common yep. question tends to criticise previous generations. Yes. Like, they were so stupid, why didn't they see this, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> what, what do you think we're doing now that you think future planners might be critical of? Ooh, what might they be critical of? Um, I think they'd probably be 
critical of how we flip-flop around with the constraints on the reasonable rollout of the supply of, of medium-density housing. Um, so that you go from extraordinary peaks and troughs of two houses only on a block all of a sudden as a mandatory thing and then it goes away again. Mm. Um, because you really do see that inequity of supply of that kind of modest dual occupancy across the broader parts of Melbourne. And if you're a planner, you understand the role that you have in housing supply and where your housing choices are, they not only will be critical of us, they will be also suffering as a consequence of those decisions. I do wonder whether they'll, they'll be critical of the substandard nature of some of the housing in terms of its sustainability and livability, because I think we've been very slow to actually truly embrace what it means to build sustainable buildings. And I mean that in every level of housing um, and to a certain degree in the commercial sector. So everything from our detached houses all the way up to um, high-rise apartment buildings, because I think more so now people... You see it in the set plan homes. They come standard with double glazing for all of the main living rooms and bedrooms. It's not even a question anymore. Mm. Um, and I think we're quite slow to, to get to that point. What approach have you admired in city development and planning that has faded that you wish could be reactivated? I think the aspiration to good urban design and architecture. So that real drive that it's as important as to what the building looks like, mm. as to how close it is to a boundary and how it does, um, you know, overshadows and all these sorts of other things. So because I think neighbourhood character is something that is so challenging for people to deal with in terms of implementing change, whether that change be a complete transformation like a Doncaster Hill project with high-rise or whether it's an incremental change, um, that there is a reluctance to actually have good policy frameworks around what a building looks like mm. because they it's seen as perhaps a mechanism to stop it from happening. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, means that the, as a consequence, y you do get some poor urban design outcomes in development that are unnecessary. And on the flip side, what, what things are, what are, what's giving you encouragement in terms of city development, city planning? Um, I think probably the urban renewal projects that are happening now in the central city are probably the most um, progressive that we've seen for a very long time and about recapturing some of those areas around the central city in a range of housing types. Um, I think that's a very good thing because it did seem very polar for a while. It was basically a big, massive, tall apartment building in the central city or a townhouse in the middle suburbs or a new house in the fringe. And so seeing some more of that diversity in each of those is probably something that we'll be a bit prouder of. Mm. Now, Manningham has an online portal, don't yes. they? So they've gone paperless? We have gone paperless. Yeah. Gulp. <laughs> <laughs> has that been a big change? It has. It, it's been a big change and it's been a small change. Can I tell you one of the weirdest parts about the change is that all of the physical files are gone and therefore all the bookcases that the files sat on and all the compactors <laughs> and all that sort of other stuff is gone and all the files have gone off everybody's desk. And you didn't realise how much colour and vibrancy all the little coloured numbers <laughs> and everything else gave. So I walked back into the office after all of that had been packed up and thought, wow, it's really boring. Yeah. It's so clinical. It almost looks like we're, we're just camping because there's no <laughs> evidence of us being there. Um, so it's, 
It's an exciting change because it's so diverse. You could work from home and you're as effective as if you're sitting at your desk at work. Yeah. And that was almost always never the case because you almost always didn't have that one file that you needed. Yeah. Has Um, it helped you make better planning decisions? Has it it assisted in that decision-making process, do you think? It will... The last missing piece for us in the jigsaw puzzle is we do need to invest in that technology. So a, a touchscreen on a wall and mm-hmm. maybe one mounted on a desk. There is a sense that some of that collaboration discussion where you mark up a plan in an old-fashioned sense to try and explain to a planner why something is or isn't working. But we do have the tools to do that. So it shouldn't in the long term have that effect. But in the very short term, we're still encouraging people to print off a plan so that they can do that. Yeah. Um, but to be truly electronic if you like you you need that final piece of technology which we have coming soon Um, I think it's it's beneficial it's definitely more efficient processes occur seamlessly files can't go missing because that was a a huge thing in local councils you either had a sort of um, military style record system where it was almost impossible to get your file back or you had no system at all and so you had no idea where it ever was and Mm. the amount of time lost You'd see 20 emails a week. Have you seen file number? Mm. Um, All of that's gone and you can track the flow of information. You can now see electronically, I guess, where all the blockages are in a way that you couldn't when it was bits of paper flying around in the internal mail. So I think in that respect there are enormous efficiencies that we will gain over the long term. Um, But nothing goes missing anymore. That's good. It's very positive. like that. Um, Now, academia has always played quite a big part um, in the planning industry. What research projects would you like to see commissioned? Ooh, that's interesting. I always thought I wanted to do um, uh, my master's in something like psychology or um, sociology or something, and (laughs) I wanted to do one on whether um, people who... um, don't fit the societal norm are attracted to remote places or do remote places make you a stranger person? I always thought mm. that would be an interesting mm. body of research to do. Definitely. Um, but I don't know that there's any great learnings from that that would benefit <laughs> society more broadly. <laughs> um, I would love to see some work done on the issue of that changing sense of what is a home and what makes a house and how we can start to shift our expectations, if you like, on what it is to be um, happy living in a house and of what size. Yeah, sure. Tash, what advice would you give to young planners starting out in the industry? Don't mind that tapping. I think there's a window washer. There's a window washer. (laughs) I can see him in the reflection. Yeah. Um, What advice would I give them? Be patient. (laughs) Um, Keep calm. And... Just keep remembering the reasons for your role in the process. And that goes whether they're a government planner or whether they're an advocate. Um, it's, it's not life and death, but it is quite important. Um, you don't want to get it wrong. Um, but you, the weight of the world is probably not... You know, the whole world isn't going to change hinged off one decision. That's uh, good be- before our final question, Jess, two mm. things you didn't know about Natasha Swan. Tash. <laughs> One, she was born in Doncaster where she now works. And secondly, she's big into car rally in central, <laughs> in central Australia. So yeah, that is a perfect lead into the last question. <laughs> um, in terms of inspirational material, can you recommend a book, a building or a place to our listeners? Um in no particular order, building the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, 
closely followed by Heidi too. Not because they're both art buildings, but um, if you haven't been out to Heidi 2, which is in Manningham, plug, plug, um, <laughs> which is a beautiful state facility, Heidi 2 is the old residence uh, for the famous artists that were based out there. Um, and it's the most amazing sandstone, limestone, something like that building. Um, it just has light, shape, movement and form. And the National Gallery of Victoria building, similarly, um, is just the most spectacular building. It's the sort of building you stand out the front of and look up and, and you just are in awe of it. Mm. it. It seems to float above the ground. It, it, it's quite seamless. I, I just really, it's great. Um, in terms of the book, I was thinking, well, I got the Peter Carey book, the latest one, which is... A, the Rallying Car... The Red X yeah, Rally Red and all the rest of it. That's mm. probably not my most inspirational book. I couldn't really <laughs> think of one because I read so many books. Um, uh, it can be trashy. It but, can be oh, really yeah, trashy. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> what was my most life-changing book? It wasn't the Twilight series, I have to say. <laughs> Sorry, everybody out there. Um, no, look, I I really like a good art book. So I think, yeah, a book... My favourite art book is... Um, my favourite artist is Toulouse-Lautrec. So I've got a book of Toulouse-Lautrec artwork, which makes me feel very happy. So I like that. Um, and a place. Um, yeah, Central Australia. I thought you were going to say Manningham It's extraordinary. Um, there's not a lot out there at first glance and so much out there at next glance. Mm. And I have driven all the way around Australia in a car rally with my dad when I was 19, 20. Um, and I've been on three or four outback rallies since then, crisscrossing across the centre of Australia. And there's, there's a point at which the, the tree cover just disappears and it becomes very low and scrubby. The dirt's always a different colour. There's just so much out there. But at first glance, it appears that there's nothing. So it is the most amazing place. And you don't have to catch a plane to get there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I've done a lot of travel around Australia, so I still think that it's one of the better places. Amazing. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Tash, for the very informative interview. And uh, Jess, thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.